Hello, and welcome to Folklore Fever. My name is Trevor Pullman, and together we're going to journey through stories that shape folklore from various parts of the world. Let's dig in. Jensen was worn down to the bone as he continued to load cartridges of black powder for the ship's cannons. He was so tired, but this was his only chance to provide for himself now that his parents had decided he was on his own. He was only 15, but as the son of a rope maker and a housemaid, money was tight for his family. His younger siblings needed to eat too, after all. He had signed aboard the ship Christianus IV out of Copenhagen as a powder monkey. As the warship was now being used to hunt pirates in the North Atlantic and protect trade, it was considered one of the safer ships for Jensen to work aboard. It was better to be the ship hunting pirates than it was to be on one of the smaller trade ships more likely to fall victim to them. Jensen knew when he signed up that it would be hard work aboard the Christianus, but starving in the streets of Copenhagen was a significantly less appealing option. His duties as the youngest member of the crew would put him in danger if they ever came across a conflict, but Jensen was betting against that happening. Raiding was few and far between in Danish waters anymore. In the meantime, Jensen was still needed to maintain the 26 guns that the Christianus had below decks. Making sure that all of the cans were secured, polished, and the gunpowder used to fire them was kept dry. When he wasn't assisting the gun crews in keeping the cannons primed in case they ran across pirates, Jensen was stuck scrubbing decks, cleaning the officers' cabins, and assisting in preparing food in the galley. It was hard work and Jensen slept like the dead every night, even on the nights the seas were rough. As he finished resecuring the can that he had been cleaning, Jensen heard a call come from the top deck that a ship had been located that looked like it had been attacked and scuttled. He ran up to the gunwale to see if he could see the wreckage. As the Christianus approached the flotsam bobbing around on the waves, her crew began looking for any survivors. The strange thing was, although there were splinters of the ship and her cargo floating atop the waves, there was no sign of the crew, not even corpses. After the Christianus made anchor near the wrecked ship, the captain and his officers began to debate what was the next action the ship would take. Other than the Swedish flag still tied to the shattered remains of the mast, there was no identifying information on any of the cargo or wreckage. After the captain had heard what his officers felt they should do, he announced that with the remaining daylight, the ship would search for any other ships in the vicinity. They were not far off of the trade routes, so there was potential for additional attacks on other trade ships by whoever had attacked this ship. After making a patrol in the vicinity of where the wreckage was found, the Christianus IV had found nothing of note. Not even additional broken parts of the ship had been found, not a rope or barrel to be seen. As the Christianus made its anchor for the night, unusual for this far out at sea, Jensen wondered in the lamplight around his hammock what could have brought down the mystery ship. Just as he started to drift off to sleep, Jensen heard a rumble, or rather felt a deep rumble in his chest, which awakened him immediately. The rumble felt as if the very sky was being torn from the earth. The shuddering of the air around Jensen and his crewmates made each of them panic in turn. As the crew of the ship rushed to the top deck, the captain opened the door to his cabin in the aft of the ship. Jensen had never seen such a regal man look so disheveled. Before Jensen could worry too much about how the captain looked, however, his attention was drawn to a scraping sound on the hull of the ship. Panicked, he looked around to see if they had run aground or hit some rocks only to see more water surrounding the vessel. The scraping sound continued, almost as if hundreds of thousands of insects were crawling alongside of the Christianus IV in unison. Jensen ran to the starboard bow to see if he could see what was causing the noise. He began to see what looked like rocks, but they were of an orangish-white color. These were not like any rocks Jensen had ever seen. As the rocks began to move and rise, he could tell that they were not actually rocks, but belonged to a creature instead. 
A giant claw came up from the water and gripped the Christianus's mast, snapping it in half as though it were not made of solid oak. A second claw came up from the depths, crushing a large portion of the forecastle under its weight. The creature that the claws were attached to lifted itself from the waters. It looked as though it was a crab or lobster of unholy size, its mouth a burbling froth of chitinous plates pulling all matter into the void that was its maw. With its largest arms, the creature began to systematically dismantle the ship, while its lesser claws began to grab cannons and Jensen's crewmates, who screamed in horror as the chitinous maw of the beast enveloped them, never to be seen again. It was at this moment, as all was destroyed around him, that Jensen understood that there were no pirates that attacked the Swedish ship. It was not too long ago that many maps had large swaths of ocean marked with the phrase here there be monsters. One of the best known sea monsters is that of the Kraken. Although there are many stories related to the Kraken, the earliest recorded version of the story is actually relatively recent and with more variation than many would realize. When the word Kraken is used, it conjures up the image of an octopus or squid of monstrous proportions, capable of breaking a large ship in half. This is fairly consistent with the first written description of the creature, which was written by an Italian Catholic priest who had traveled throughout Scandinavia writing a travel guide for the area. In this depiction, the kraken is seen as an octopus, or a polypus, as it may have more than eight arms, which is mistaken for an island given its gigantic size. This depiction did not reach mainstream popularity for another century and a half when author Jules Verne used the creature in his novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. However, this is not the only way that monsters associated with the name Kraken were depicted. Many maps would mark unknown or uncharted waters with various kinds of sea monsters. Some of these would be whales, described as having a beard made of stars. Others were described as great tusked animals, shaped like a giant hippopotamus. Many other depictions of these monsters stalking the unknown ocean were more primordial. They would be lobsters, crabs, starfish, and jellyfish of an obscene size. Many of these creatures appeal to the natural predators of the ocean. It's very possible that somewhere in the instinctual portion of our brain that we see these creatures as potential threats when they get this big, as they eat many creatures smaller than themselves. Also have noticed that most of these animals that become the archetype for monsters have extremely different body types than we do, as they're suited for their environment. However, as they move in very different ways than humans or even terrestrial creatures do, it makes them even more foreign to us. This also is translated by our brain as being potentially dangerous. The undulating movement of a cephalopod or a jellyfish is such a foreign mode of locomotion that the human mind struggles to identify it as an option. The other reason that these creatures became the monsters of the deep we know today is that many of these creatures were observed and then simply exaggerated. It would not be uncommon to see a large whale, then when trading stories over drinks in port, to make the whale bigger or to have exaggerated features. Just like with modern fish stories, when it became a competition to have the best story, details were added. Add in a culture of heavy drinking and you have a recipe for fast-tracking the creation of folklore. More recently, these monsters are starting to sound like they may not be entirely out of the question, though. At the time of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, there had never been a squid even remotely the size he had suggested. Now with the discovery of the giant squid, these reports are more and more plausible. This, coupled with potential misidentification of large fish, such as the oarfish, which can grow up to 26 feet long and is shaped like a long ribbon, could be the basis of many of these myths. Oarfish normally live between 600 and 1,000 meters below the surface of the ocean. They rarely come to the surface, but when they do, 
they almost always die simply due to their lack of muscle development needing to swim in shallower water. However, if one came to the surface and was still alive, it would likely be thrashing, causing its long, slender body to look similar to the concept of what a sea serpent should look like. Another misidentified animal was often members of the brittle star family, called basket stars. These are similar to starfish, but with many more arms. They are oftentimes much larger than normal starfish, with the Gorgonocephalidae family being the largest. The biggest members of this family can reach up to two and a half feet in length. Early naturalists thought that these Gorgonocephalids, or as their name means, Medusa's heads, may have been the eggs or even the live young of krakens. The history of the giant polypus extends outside of the story of the kraken, however. Pliny the Elder, an ancient Roman historian and chronicler, wrote how the waters near the town of Cartia, which was located near the Strait of Gibraltar, was the home of what he called the Arbor Marinus, or ocean tree. This was supposed to be a polypus, which specifically would hunt down divers and those shipwrecked to tear them apart. It wasn't clear if the Arbor Marinus was also responsible for bringing down ships in the area as well, or if it simply killed those in the water like a multi-armed version of the shark from Jaws. Stories of giant ocean-going monsters were not confined to Europe, however. In South America, in the region now known as Patagonia, the Mapuche people worshipped one of these giant sea creatures in the form of Keke Filu. Keke Filu was the god of water and took the form of a giant sea snake. Its domain was all of the sea and all of the creatures that lived in the seas. In one of the myths of the Mapuche, Keke Filu was also a very destructive force. Keke Filu, by smashing his giant tail into the waves, caused the land to be flooded in an effort to destroy all people and animals on land. The guardian snake of the land, Tenten Filu, began to fight with Keke Filu in an attempt to stop the destruction. Ultimately, the fight lasted until both snake deities were exhausted. This meant that although Keke Filu had flooded a large portion of the land, his efforts to flood all the world had been stopped by Tenten Filu. This was used as the way that the Mapuche people explained the way that southern Chile got its unique geography. Keke Filu is not regulated to only myth, though. In 2011, a paleontological group from Chile was doing an excavation on Seymour Island, Antarctica. As part of their research, they were able to excavate the skull, several jaw fragments, a partial humerus, and about 30 teeth from a mosasaur that had yet to be discovered. A mosasaur is a large aquatic reptile that existed during the late Cretaceous period of Earth's history. The species was the first of its genus to be discovered. Due to the scientist Chilean background, they decided to name the genus of the mosasaur after the great snake god of the ocean, K.K. Filu. So far in this episode, we've talked about octopus and squids, snakes and ancient sea creatures, but we haven't talked about the most common kind of animal in the sea, fish. In Greek mythology, any large sea creature was known as a kathos. This ended up being where the word cetacean, relating to whales, came from. In mythology, there are several kite, but the most prominent features are in the story of Perseus and Andromeda. The very stripped-down version of the story is that Andromeda, who was the princess of Ethiopia, or modern Ethiopia, was chained to a large stone as an offering to Kato's. Kato's was sent to destroy Ethiopia after Andromeda's mother, Queen Cassiopeia, boasted very publicly about how she and Andromeda were more beautiful than all the Nereids, who served Poseidon. This enraged Poseidon, and he sent Kato's to destroy the whole country. Upon hearing the plight of the kingdom, the famous hero Perseus set out to slay the monster. 
When he arrived, he found Andromeda chained to the rock and waited for Katos to attack. When the beast leapt from the water, Perseus saw that the creature was an almost 40-foot-long serpent-like fish. Before it could eat Andromeda whole, Perseus drove his magical golden sword into the creature's back from atop his winged horse Pegasus, slaying the monster. There are also variations where Perseus doesn't even mess with getting his hands dirty and just uses the severed head of Medusa to turn the creature to stone, which promptly sinks to the bottom of the ocean. As part of his reward for saving both the princess and the nation, Perseus marries Andromeda, but not before using the head of Medusa to turn her betrothed, who is also her uncle, to stone. I'm not sure if Perseus is the good guy in the story, or if he just happened to kidnap the princess and kill her fiancé on his way out the door. The story of Catos became well-known throughout the Mediterranean, however. One of the cultures that took to the story of Catos quite well were the Hebrews. Throughout the Old Testament, the term Tanin is used to describe a large oceanic monster that was associated with chaos and evil. This term was translated into Greek using the word Catos. This is one of the creatures specifically named during the creation story in Genesis. Notably, it's also listed that God will destroy Tanin, or Catos, at the end of the world. Ketos may also be the inspiration behind the great fish that swallowed Jonah in the Old Testament. The original Hebrew just states that it was a great fish, but when the document was translated into Greek, the term Mega Ketos was used instead. Every culture that has access to the ocean has some form of a story that includes unknown creatures of the sea. Whether that's considered to be wholly fictional, such as H.P. Lovecraft's Dagon, or may have more realistic roots than even the author intended, such as Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We all have some sort of fear that out there in the unknown depths of the ocean, a monster is waiting. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, only 5% of all the Earth's oceans have been explored. The oceans make up 70% of Earth's surface, and we know more about the surface of both Mars and the moon than we do about the depths of our own planet. Perhaps these stories have more truth to them than we think. Thank you for listening to Folklore Fever. This episode was written and researched by me, Trevor Pullman. The opening theme is by me, you. You can find more of his excellent work at thedarkpiano.com. If you would like to contact the podcast, please send an email to folklorefever at gmail.com. See you soon.